0: Our scholar reclines as the sun burns out over shaded water, greets the moon with a flask of clear sweet wine, drinks her health and falls asleep, reflecting how he must write a poem about the dragonflies, their perfect ligature of colour and motion.
1: listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Hello, my name is Jennifer Williams. I'm the program manager at the Scottish Poetry Library and today is the first day of the Edinburgh International Book Festival 2016 and I have just whisked away an amazing poet from the book festival who I just got to see uh, reading. It was the sort of I think it was actually the first event of the book festival, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was amazing. P- <laughs> <in> they <laughs> um, In the beautiful, glittering Spiegel tent this morning, we had the poet Billy Lepford and uh, we had the wonderful Sarah Howe, who I'm sitting with. Um, I'm delighted that she could um, make some time for us to do this interview. In oh, and thank together. you, Jennifer. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sarah was actually here a couple years ago before the library was refurbished, so you've just got to see the new new and improved poetry library. And we're just going to talk a bit about her book, Loop of Jade, which came out in 2015 and won the T.S. Eliot Prize and the Sunday Times PFD Young Writer of the Year Award. It's really been a uh, kind of very important book and it's won many different awards because it is so wonderful. It was also shortlisted for the Seamus Heaney Centre Poetry Prize and the Forward Prize for Best First Collection. Sarah was born in Hong Kong to an English father and a Chinese mother. He moved to England as a child. And uh, actually, I was just I was interested listening to you speaking at your event earlier with Jenny Niven, the wonderful Jenny Niven from Creative Scotland, uh, about... Chinese, your experience of learning Chinese, because I hadn't quite realized, I wasn't sure whether you would learn Chinese as a child or later on, but it was more, it's not by the sound of it, it sounded as if it was something you did more as an adult. As an adult. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, not till my late 20s. Huh? Very interesting. You also have a pamphlet called A Certain Chinese Encyclopedia, which won an Eric Gregory Award, um, and your poems have been featured in many journals and anthologies. You've been on the radio, and we saw you just last night on telly, which is quite exciting. And you've had, uh, you're also an academic, so you've had various fellowships, and um, where your your base, your 11th? Lever Hume Fellow at the University of College London at the moment. Yeah, uh, yeah, I
0: just started a couple of months ago, so I haven't actually really met any students <laughs> yet because it's the summer holidays.
1: <laughs> oh, amazing! So, will
0: you actually be teaching as part? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the nice thing about the Lever Hume Early Career Fellowships that I'm part of uh, is that you do a mix of research and teaching, so I'll be let loose on them with lectures and seminars and things.
1: (laughs) Amazing. And will
0: you have time to just do some writing as well? I hope so. (laughs) That's not actually part of the official brief, because my day job is I I teach Renaissance English literature, so um, it's sort of much more about the Shakespeare and so on. Okay.
1: Fantastic. Oh, I have all sorts of questions already, but before I get started, we're going to kick off with a poem. Um, to get that right in there, and then we'll get to chatting.
0: So, I'll hand it over to you. Well, Jennifer, um, you mentioned that there was a special request for this poem, yes. which I was sort of happy about because I. <laughs> there was a time when I was quite fond of this one shortly um, after I'd written it, and I used to kick off readings with it, but I sort of. Um, it dropped out of the repertoire of poems that I often read, so it feels um, strange to come back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose I should say that there's a pun from the very offing which you can't hear because the title is Start With Weather um, w-e-a-t-h-e-r weather as in like what you have and it's very rainy and sunny alternately in Edinburgh in August but then the weather that comes back elsewhere in the poem is the w-h-e weather so this is called Start With Weather Whether they will ever return to us is a hard and indeterminate thing. Whether the scrunched-up mind in its agony can pass the parakeet's tracks. Whether between the powder and the peeling face anything actually matters. Whether the dope stout is preferable to the topus torpor. Whether my pearls live with Orlando's wits in the moon's cold scrapyard. Where the guilt's deranged orbit jellies the tar of parking lots. Whether the Lord is my coelacanth, who shall not weep? Whether the foul-fleshed solecism is the queerest of fish? Whether my beached pearls in their solace rode death's sad carousel? Whether the lost will come back to us in an agony of parakeets? Whether the courtship of crab and faux oak finial will break into peeling song?
1: <laughs> You've got such a beautiful reading, boys. So, I, I feel like it's very naughty to ask a poet what is the poem about, <laughs> but our wonderful um, Marjorie Lofty Gill, who's started a, a group called Open Book here at the library, they're, they're reading your book over a course of weeks, and this was one of the first poems that they started with, and apparently they were all demanding to know what is it all about so I said I'd ask you
0: (laughs) (laughs) well I, I find it very hard to say what it's about because it's almost um one of the poems in the book that works in a slightly different mode to some of the others in the sense that I suppose it's not really about anything though it does have snippets that come out of my everyday life uh it's it's more a poem um that i think of as being a sort of left-handed poem and (laughs) by that i mean uh i i studied life drawing um for a long time because i had delusions that i might be a painter when i grew up um and i had this fantastic art teacher who used to make us put our pencil or piece of charcoal into our wrong hand and um do do drawings uh that involved sort of hobbling skill somehow. So I think of this poem as being a little bit like those life drawings where um, because you couldn't control the charcoal very well anymore, uh, all these accidents um, and felicitous things would emerge that weren't in your control. So I think of this as, as being one of several poems in the book that for me are more about trying to access the unconscious, the subconscious, some part of our minds um, and being as poets, which isn't to do with the conceptual intellect. Um, though I suppose it came out of a procedure which is quite similar to automatic writing, which I, I guess, um, as all your listeners probably will know is one of these avant-garde procedures that experimental poets and artists through the 20th century would use as a way of talking to the unconscious mind um, and it does sort of give rise to these slightly surreal moments and conjunctions. There are things that you can pass here, I guess that the fact that I lost a pearl bracelet um, which was very precious to me shortly before writing this poem obviously was playing on my mind so little things like that came out. I'm not sure where the parakeets came from <laughs> I think I must have had a conversation just before that about you know those parakeets that people release as pets uh, that they can't keep anymore in London which have formed these colonies in various parks. And So there are funny things like that that just floating around and so I think of poems like this as being almost a lightning rod for whatever is playing on on the mind. It's interesting
1: when poems like this come up in reading groups and that instinct comes out of people they want to, want to know, they want to be able to pin something down but I think I think it's one of the magnificent things about poetry which actually we do with other kinds of writing as well though the connection between our own interpretation and the intended or assumed intended interpretation of the writer feels maybe we don't have to feel as empowered to make our own interpretation, but, but it's one of the things that poetry gives us. Often, it is this, you know, saying to the reader, whatever, what do you think it's mm. about? What does it mean to you? You know, and and so you've given us this combination of words on the page, this combination of sounds, actually, which I think that pun between the title and those first words of each line really I think gets you started right away of thinking of what do words mean What is the connection between the sound of word and the meaning of word and then and it's like it's it's saying you can play you can open your imagination up and and think about you know I mean Orlando for instance especially you having just mentioned that you teach Shakespeare you know brings up a Shakespeare connection but to someone else that might be a Virginia Woolf connection or, you oh, know, yeah, so. Absolutely. In fact, this Orlando, I think, was before either of
0: those Orlandos. The one I had in mind is the <laughs> yeah. Orlando of Ariosto's oh, Orlando yeah. Furioso. So there's this bit yeah. where Orlando Furioso means um, Orlando mad. So he loses his wits at one point and they fly off to the dark side of the moon, which is where Ariosto imagines that all the lost things congregate. So one of his friends flies up on a hippogriff to the moon and finds mm-hmm. his wits in amongst all the sort of lost pairs of glasses and uh, shipwrecks and all the stuff that is, has ever been lost on, on, on oh, the earth ends amazing. up there. And then he picks up and, and pulls the stoppers out and they his wits float exactly. back into his friend's head. <laughs>
1: I think I've got some stuff up there as well. (laughs) (laughs) um, That's really
0: interesting what you were saying just now, because I guess one word I haven't used yet is nonsense. And that is something that runs through this book as a theme. And so I think that on some level, the poems I've just described, the ones that don't really make conventional sense in in the way that we might expect uh, from a lyric poem, they participate for me in this some sort of Chinese whispers ish mode, I think of it, which is about miscommunication and accident and sound and separating sound from sense. And I I um I, I do wonder if the experience I had of growing up listening to my mum and everyone else in Hong Kong speaking Cantonese as a language that I didn't actually understand did somehow affect me as the poet that I would become because uh I guess Cantonese is inherently, with its three sort of tone levels, quite a musical language. And so I've always been interested in this point at which um, repetition does it, but poetry does it in all sorts of different ways, where sound and sense seem to tug apart from each other. Um, and I guess that's something that I'm interested in in the Eastern tradition more generally, something like the Buddhist koan, um, that's the Japanese rather than the Chinese word f- for for it, Um, The idea that uh, Buddhism creates this form which is about um, taking us into an alternate type of consciousness that sort of is about disrupting the normal lines of our thinking because those lines can trap us. And so, you know, I guess the most famous one would be the what's the sound of, yeah, (laughs) Jennifer has just raised (laughs) one hand in a silent clap, Um, but I guess these are sort of Chinese whispers, one hand clapping sort of poems. Mm.
1: And is there a reference to Ashbery in one of the Yeah, yeah, and Ashbery is very
0: much um, my guiding star in this, I think, Mm. and I'm very fascinated by the way that he and other poets in that, um, sort of emergent in the 60s milieu. We're interested in Eastern models, and koans, and uh, Buddhism, and, mm-hmm. and so on.
1: And you mentioned earlier today, Pound as well, who I think is is interesting too, and in that, you know, I feel like every time I read the cantos, or look at the cantos, I have that feeling of, I just, I love them, but I don't understand them, and that's that's what I love about it, in a way. Like, it is, not accessible to me for so many reasons, but the everything about it, the the music of the words I can read and the images of the words I can't read and all that kind of mingles together and, and does tap into that part of the brain. I think that you know art is, I think, a, a good thing to bring in as well. And it's interesting, again, when you talk about the uh, pictogram languages, like oh, we can talk about that more because it's so interesting, but That there is something about the part of our brain that maybe in the Western world we tend to think of using more for art rather than language because we make this slightly weird separation between those two things, Mm -hmm. but that we might be more accustomed to looking at a painting and not having to think about it in a literal, mm-hmm. logical, what-does-it-mean kind of mm-hmm. way. Whereas yeah, it you don't look at a
0: Kandinsky and say, what does this mean? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I guess, and Ashbury is important to me for that very reason, that I am interested in abstraction and to what extent you might be able to create just a, a mood or a colour or an atmosphere in a poem. Uh, funnily enough, I, I had the odd experience of a friend... Um, saying that she had been reading my book on the tube and that she was terribly moved to the point of crying by, I think, this poem, oh. um, and I, I was like, why? Uh, and she said, oh, it was really sad because of the way that it describes a person with dementia. And I suddenly realized that this was because her own father was suffering with dementia. So for her, this poem, um, was about a mind disintegrating, so that was the sort of way that she made sense of it, as it were, and that was really fascinating to me because it was not something I ever intended. But I guess that isn't something that I would want to say. No, I never meant that as a poet. That's not an authorizable meaning. Because <laughs> I'm sort of the whole point of these poems is that people should sort of bring to them um, their raw shark sort of interpretation. Mm. Um, from their own frameworks and frames of reference. In terms of the way that people might relate to these poems, I've been very um fascinated uh, what, to hear the, the all the different sorts of experiences that readers come uh, and backgrounds that readers come from and and with themselves to these poems and sort of see themselves reflected in them. Because I guess even if you're not literally an immigrant person or a body cultural or a mixed race person, there are all sorts of different experiences of division and relocation that um, seem to chime. Uh, And so that's been really lovely for me, actually, to to understand that... um, The specificity of the settings, the locality is not necessarily uh, a bar to um, things resonating more widely. I was always aware that I wanted this book to tell a sort of story but that I wanted it to be hard-won, as it were, because the way that this story Um, came to me and that I made sense of it, was in a very fragmented, broken, difficult, hard-to-interpret way. Um, So I guess the story begins with with my own experience as relocating across the world as a child from Hong Kong to England when I was seven, but also then goes further back into the story of my mum and her growing up in, um, in Hong Kong after she was... Uh, given up as a baby in China in forty eight, and and then further back, beyond that I can't go. There's just this sort of blank of impossibility of knowing my Chinese inheritance and ancestors and and family beyond that point. So, um, I guess the title poem is where this comes through most strongly because it reenacts this encounter that I had with my mum in. More recent years, uh, where late in the evening, when everyone else had gone to bed, uh, she would just start to talk about her childhood and about things that I had ne- never known about her, and which I think were quite difficult for her to tell. And so, all the hesitations and contradictions, and she would occasionally say, I this is what my adoptive mother told me but I don't know if this can be right or, you know, all the, the um, snags in that story I, I wanted to bring into the poem um, itself and so the book, it's quite resistant in some ways to, to telling a, a straightforward narrative um, and in fact you, you, you wouldn't even realise until the penultimate poem where there's this sort of spoiler alert, reveal um, that this is my mum's story being told, I think, Uh, so I think that for me was why this needed to be poems rather than say a a novel or a non-fiction memoir or something like that, because the white space, the gaps, the dislocations that are naturally um, a part of poems when they're put together in a book was something I was very, very interested in, that structure and that chronology, I played around with for a long time in ordering the book
1: and so I mean there's even uh, if you don't have this book yet go out and buy it and read it because it's wonderful immerse yourself in it but there there are all sorts of formal experiments and ways in which the words in the poems are sometimes set out literally with I wish I could show you uh, <laughs> spaces and gaps in a block of text that really give you that sense of a, of absences or blanks that the words are working and um, mistranslations I suppose Mm -hmm. so this is
0: sort of what I meant when I was talking about how start with Weather a poem like that relates for me to a poem like Loop of Jade because Loop of Jade, um, the title poem it has these moments where either with a blank space or a dash or something it represents my mum's voice breaking off, just not being able to talk anymore or or pausing Um, so it's this is something I noticed when when she was talking. She would always say, my mother. And there would be that pause there because she was looking for the word and neither Chinese nor English, I think, could supply the right word, that that is who that woman was and yet, for various reasons, she wasn't a mother to her either. Um, and so it's the wrong word. Also, um, like the the way that that poem deals with the word boarding school. Like, my mum always talks talks about this boarding school she was sent to, and yet that word in English is entirely the wrong word, um, because that, for us, has all these associations of privilege and eliteness, whereas I don't know how to describe the place that she was sent uh, when she was uh, five or so, a place where families would send girls that they were too poor to look after. So they would go off to this institution to, to sort of be collectively cared for. Um, and so these poems are very interested in the idea that you might supply a word which is just about adequate for the moment, but as a reader it's your job to look behind them and, and see the, the resonance standing just to one side. Mm,
1: fantastic. Shall we have another poem? Yeah, yeah. In um, fact, the next poem I'm going
0: to read is one that relates to exactly uh, the Pound um, and Chinese ideogram pictogram question you mentioned before. Pound had this um, method called the ideogrammatic method uh, um, of sort of teasing out the origin and etymology of Chinese characters and using this as a a spur to his own writing in things like the cantos, and he would put the characters in the right-hand margin. And um, that happens in this poem too. There are various Chinese characters that appear along the right-hand side of the book, which of course you you won't be able to see now, but you just have to imagine them there as (laughs) I read. This is called Drawn with a Very Fine Camel Hair Brush. Late spring, a scholar sits in his study. After much contemplation, he lends his brush the ideal pressure, leaves his mind there on the paper. Landing at Canton, the first Jesuits believed they'd stumbled on the lost language of Eden, that Ham had helped offload the ark, then set off for the east, its walled lands, taking with him Adam's perfect tongue that named the animals one by one. As the hopeful missionaries learned to see in that strangely branching pagan script, the fletched fur of tree, the strong crescent of moon, they found God's awe in each fabulous character, each one a nest of lacquer boxes, worlds within worlds, where meaning was a garden where you could wander forever in the scent of peach blossom following the river. A hand, a brush, its inclination, involved in an anchoring of sign to thing so artful that we, like the Jesuits, might forget words' tenuous moorings. Picture a journeying scholar-poet headed down river, let's say to visit a distant friend, when he's caught by a still and peaceful spot where the petals languid drift across the blue-brown mirror is the only sign in this pool-like lull of the water's relentless drive. He might lodge his little boat under a peach tree's bough and, choosing a flattish patch of bank, fold his long robe under his knees to admire, overhead, the slant of a black branch still damp from a shower, its cursive script ghosting across the stream's spread scroll. There, in the gently buzzing shade, he meditates on the restless dragonflies, the large green kind and the smaller red, which hover above their blurred other selves, then dart elsewhere to hang once more, their slender silvered wings, too quick to see, a marriage of stillness and furious motion. This last scene being our mistranslation, since what he sees is not the fierce miniature offspring of a fly and dragon's astonishing tryst, but a word like two jewelled eyes of mirrored worlds. He learned them as a child, each tapering stroke of snake-thin insect, how the camel-hair tip traces through green, tangles up, go and stop, this last gesture a sketch of a man at rest, also happening to hold the word for Scholar. Our Scholar reclines as the sun burns out over shaded water, greets the moon with a flask of clear sweet wine, drinks her health and falls asleep, reflecting how he must write a poem about the dragonflies, their perfect ligature of colour and motion to wake, hours later, cheek wet with mourning, to discover his badly knotted skiff has disappeared downstream.
1: Thank you very much. I love actually the, um, that final line, has disappeared downstream, is actually set a little bit down from that last stanza and off to the side as if it is actually slipping <laughs> it's, it's <bloody>. drifted off. <laughs> It's so interesting, I think, you know, seeing that, because there are a few of these, um, the, the, the actual symbols, as you mentioned, on the side of the text, and yet it's, it's a wonderful kind of vibration going on, I think, between the English words being used to describe and those words. Is it, is it actually a cat? Well, or, um, did, are they specific to a particular... This is
0: the traditional script. Um so the word for dragonfly chingting um in Mandarin uh this is the characters okay, for so, them. Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, which is in the margin here. So you can see them right there. And this this I don't know, it's it's even interesting just seeing the kind of um snake thin insect, green, go, stop, scholar are italicized in the English text and then I don't know, there's a wonderful energetic vibration between those. I don't know, I suppose, and I think that came up in the conversation this morning as well. Billy Letford was talking about dialect languages and and many different languages, and this idea that actually, I think we sometimes forget that they're all just sounds, um, and there is a kind of Babel-esque you know, c- uh, cacophony of sound, which is all these this different sounds we all make trying to express ourselves and communicate. And, and there's something about written language as well that I think comes up in when you see the text presented like this. But yeah, what's a beautiful poem. I feel like there's a, a wonderful pace to it, that you really take your time to tell the kind of story of the poem that is very... It's actually quite meditative and relaxing to experience it read, read and wonderful to hear you read it. And there's um, an amazing moment, I think, when the scholar in the poem at the end is talking about, oh, I must write a poem about dragonflies. And somehow it, it circles the poem in a way because you've re- managed to write a poem about Dragonfly is in the process of writing about this person, thinking about writing about dragonflies. I don't know, there's a wonderful <laughs> loop in that. I
0: well, I guess there is a, there's a sort of mischievous circularity <laughs> to this poem in exactly that way. I, I thought, think of it as um, being a bit of a shaggy dog story. I, <laughs> I noticed this about a few of the poems when I was putting together the manuscript, actually, that a lot of them have structures a little bit like jokes with punchlines or reveals and I guess the meditative quality that you um, mentioned in this poem was for me very much about lulling the reader into a false sense of security and <laughs> then you sort of pull, tug the rug out from underneath um, and yeah I guess the, this, this stanza just before the end, the one with the characters for Dragonfly you just mentioned, is... Quite naughty in in this respect, in as much as all these elements, um, the the green, the go and stop, the uh, fragment that means scholar within this character, all of those things aren't actually part of the meaning of the Chinese character for dragonfly at all. They're they're um, the elements that indicate the sound of those words, um, which I guess is the is the punch um, in the punchline of this poem, the notion that um, this European idealisation of the Chinese language that has gone on from the Jesuits down to pound was about thinking that um, Chinese has this perfect connection between word and thing, when actually Chinese equally has phonetic elements too. So all of this poem with the scholar and the uh, journey down the river this is all a, a figment of imagination of wild imagination that isn't actually authorised by the the etymology of those characters mm. at all
1: and interesting because that whole, as you've referred to this aspect of the Chinese language which it sounds like often has the capacity for a lot of punning and I don't know there's something in all that, all that which I think is and the notion of Chinese whispers that from a w- western perspective there and and certainly from a you know for instance patronizing colonial kind of perspective that maybe is to some extent the the negative side of that romanticization of of some of these foreign languages and and uh alphabets it actually leaves the the scholar um in a very silly position sometimes because through their own romantic or controlling and not true understanding of what's going on they're missing a whole they're kind of missing the point and and i think also you refer to another in another wonderful poem this idea of the way people within a control system um such as the uh, the chinese firewall that yeah. controls free expression on the internet can then make use of those capacities within the language to find a free expression that the censors don't get, you know? And I remember hearing about, I think it was maybe, I think in Iran or somewhere, but um, a lot of what had come up in that festival, I think it was theatre and film, was about how metaphor in the, the writing of the scripts mm. was used so much more than maybe in Western scripts, because it was a way of escaping censorship, Mm. but actually it made for very rich Mm. texts, you know, that it it was a kind of source of special creativity as well. And it's hard to pin down
0: when you're questioned, I suppose, because censor comes up to you and says, oh, in this line you've insulted the president, and you say, no, I haven't, it's about birds (laughs) singing in the forest. Yeah, I'm very interested in that game of cat and mouse in the Mm. contemporary Chinese context. Um, So I guess that yeah, there are a couple of poems that work in the way you've just mentioned. One of them is a poem about my recollections as a five-year-old of uh, what the events that would turn into the Tiananmen massacre in Beijing. I was in Hong Kong, so um, many uh, hundreds of miles from. Beijing, but even so, was aware of these events and unfolding on the on the television screen and in Hong Kong itself. Um, and that poem has uh, this sort of subtitle poem on the eve of May thirty fifth. Uh, and May thirty fifth is this imaginary, invented date that Chinese bloggers and writers came up with so that they would be able to post it on the internet as a way of referring to Tiananmen. Um, which is known not by the place name um, in Chinese as it is in English, but by the date, 6-4, uh, um, uh, June the 4th, uh, and you're just not allowed to post the combination of numbers, 6-4, June 4th, anything mm-hmm. on the Chinese internet because that's an immediate signal that you're up to something uh, that the, the government doesn't want you to be up to. So May 35th, for a while, was a way of getting around that, of course, the uh, authorities catch up with you uh, <laughs> quite quickly, but um, I sort of love that moment of this sort of Swiftian imagination of uh, some date that, that would let you get around these blocks.
1: <laughs> was that experience of as an adult learning the Chinese language? I mean, was that so? So you you didn't really you, you knew a little of it when you were little, or you you really had no well, access? I
0: to it? I. I didn't feel like I really spoke any Cantonese, but I was confused when my mum said to me more recently that maybe I did use to speak and understand more than I now remember myself mm-hmm. doing. Uh, she said that I sort of would come out with uh, sentences and phrases in, in Cantonese when I was quite small, but I I mean, I, I still have a few snippets of baby Cantonese, but nothing meaningful. I can't follow a conversation. So it was quite strange for me learning Mandarin as an adult, because, of course, that's not my mum's dialect. It's the official literary language, um, but it's not what my mum speaks. Cantonese is much more like something like Scots in that respect. It is a it is a dialect, but verging on being a whole different language in the sense that it's not really very mutually comprehensible
1: uh, for Mandarin speakers. And when you, because you go back, don't you? And you've, I think you mentioned that you've done a sort of reading tour recently. Do you, I guess that made me think I was quite curious, like how do people there um, take in your work and has it been translated into Mandarin or, or Chinese languages? That was
0: quite an interesting experience for me. I was very, very nervous about going to Hong Kong. Um, It was last month that I went there for um, a trip with the British Council, and it was the first time I'd ever read my poems in Hong Kong. Uh, And I think there was a, a lot of interest, which astonished me. I'd never thought that there would be partly because you know why do you need someone who's effectively a tourist to write poems about the place where you're walking around every day you can see it for yourself why is it interesting to see it through these sort of somewhat alienated eyes but it turned out that that did seem to be interesting to hong kong readers and i found that quite moving i also found quite moving the notion that they would want to claim me as a hong kong poet because i don't think i would ever have used that title Hong Kong poet of myself, I, I don't quite know how to describe myself ever, I suppose British Chinese is maybe the label if I had to reach for one would, on yeah <laughs> exactly, it's it the one that I would go for, maybe British Chinese with a hyphen between the two, I, I don't know, but Hong Kong poet wasn't something that I felt that I had earned or deserved because um, I'm not sufficiently connected with the place Uh, in terms of um, citizenship or living there anymore. But it was sort of lovely having my sense of what that that might mean expanded for me uh, by going there, that they would want to embrace me. On the question of whether my poems have been translated into Chinese, I sometimes worry about the translators who get in touch with me, uh, whether they wholly know what they would be getting themselves into. There was a a Cantonese shock jock, you know, on the radio. Who he's the sort of disc jockey that Cantonese speaking taxi drivers would listen to in of of an evening in their cabs, pontificating about political things. And I happened to meet him on this recent trip, and he said don't let them translate that poem innumerable about May 35th, because you don't know if they're going to do it right. <laughs> As in, he was like, he actually said, oh, it's so much about what's behind the words, you have to watch very, very carefully. Because I had mentioned that um, I had people working on the translation of that poem. And so he was like, you need to be careful that mm. it goes into Chinese correctly. Um, yeah. Because I guess translators always face this problem, but where there's so much of a burden of implication of what's going on in the white space, what's going on behind the words, that, um, to make sure that
1: that all comes into it. Poetry is often said to be one of the hardest uh, types of language to translate anyway, but often because it's those moments of metaphor and pun and, and double and triple meanings in words I don't envy those, <laughs> those translators. I have to let you go off to your, um, I know you've got a lunch date and you've got the festival to get on with so um, thank you so much for giving us this little bit of time, it's really so wonderful to get to talk to you and hear oh, people's so it, yes. it means a lot I would love to hear one last little one before okay, we maybe I'll choose possible. a one
0: Night in Arizona The last of the sheet I shuffle off an ankle A sound like the spilling of sand from shovel And the night air blurs for a second with its footfall Our entwined shape a word in the dark On my forehead and cheek Each flourishing charge of your breathing Is a moment's reprieve Heat in this place goes deeper than sleep Wraps everything Increases sheen, the forearm weighing your flank as dreaming you turn from me. Curlicues slick on the backs of thighs, my hand at your neck, and eyes aware of several kinds of dark, struggling to perfect themselves. The hidden chair, the bouquet of our clothes, the rosary arms of a juniper rattling crazily at the edge of that endless reddening haze. Glad we move on the city at dawn. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.